Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 231. We are the beginning of the week of Parshas Lech Lecha, and middle of this week is also Zayin Cheshven, the seventh of Cheshven. And as the Rebbe explains, they have a common theme. And the theme is the continuation of the journey and transition from the saturated month of holidays of Tishrei into the so-called routine and more mundane life of the regular year. And this doesn't happen like all transitions overnight. There are steps. So the beginning begins with the end of Simchas and then Shabbos Bereshis, then Pasha Neyach. But Zayin Cheshvan particularly, as well as the theme of Lech Lecha, which we'll speak about in a moment, what Zayin Cheshvan? Zayin Cheshvan, the time of the Beis Amigdash, the Mishnah says, in Tainus, that on that day they waited to begin requesting the prayer for rain, even though in Shemini Hatzeres we already asked for rain, but the daily request for Geshem, for rain, did not begin until Zayin Cheshvan, because 15 days after the holiday, every Jew returned to the farthest places, even the Har Pros, which is the Euphrates River in Babylon, during the time after Bayesian, after the first temple. So he did not want to cause discomfort to Jews by praying for rain, that they would have a rainy journey. So you wait, and then it begins. And today too, even though we don't have the base of Migdash, also because of Kshamim, the request for Kshamim in Israel begins in Ayin as well as in a, in a shtar, in a contract, if you write, that something will be done after the regal, after the holiday, it's Zayin Cheshvan, because that's when the period concludes as the words of the Shach, and cited by the Alter Rebbe, that what? That till then they still feel and sense that they're asukim, they're still involved in the spirit and the activities of the holiday of the regal, the Alira regal. As explained in a number of sikhs, this all applies today as well, even though we don't have the base of Midrash and there's no Dalil Regal as it was in the time of the Temple, but still, as the Alter Rebbe says, that Bizman we also do things connected to the holiday and we make our pilgrimages, traveling to the Rebbe for Yom Tif, or other forms of so-called comparative to the Alil Regal. So when does the really the spirit and the Ruach and of the Regal end? Zayin Cheshvan, this week. And until then, we still we, we're so careful that we don't want to cause any Jew any type of anguish, even the discomfort, even though rain is a blessing, and so many people will benefit from it, but we hold it up until the last individual comes to the farthest outposts. At that time, for the Jewish population, it was Nahar Pros. Also shows you a tremendous lesson in Avis Yisrael, how far Chal Yisrael will wait till that person comes home before they ask for rain, which is, as I said, even though it's a blessing for them, they'll forego it for the benefit of another. Lech Lecha is a similar theme. The word Lech Lecha itself is a journey. What's the journey? The journey of God telling Abraham that he should leave where he, was, where he lived, where he grew up, and he should travel toward Eretz Yisrael. This is the first journey of the first Jew. Where was he living at the time? He was living in uh, what is today more or less southeast, southeastern Iraq, and his journey was along the Euphrates and then to the west to Eretz Yisrael. So Lech Lecha captures the concept of a journey, and is the first real command to the first Jew, as I said, because it's a, because life is a journey, and the journey begins that we go away from Artzach Hamalatuch of Besavicha, and we go to the land that I will show you. So in the context of the season of the year, the journey from Tishrei, just like there's a journey in space from, uh, I'm sorry, just like there's a journey in space from one place to another place, there's also a journey in time. When you travel from the, as I said, the saturated month of Tishrei, Merubah B'meides, filled with holidays into the so-called regular year, that's a journey. And we come armed with all the strength we receive during this month of Tishrei, in order to deal with all the challenges that life presents itself throughout the year. But specifically when it comes to Lech Lecha, it adds something even more. It's not just that there's a journey. Lech Lecha, 
could have just said lech. Lech lecha means your journey. Every one of us has our unique journey that's unique to you and doesn't apply necessarily to someone else. And it also teaches us how to travel. You know, you can travel physically. Many people who travel have billions of, of frequent flyer miles and they don't move an inch spiritually or psychologically. They're the same person, the same personality, the same trappings, the same routines, the same habits. So how does one truly travel? So the Pasuk tells us, God tells it to Avram Avinu. And in an interesting way, when you read it ostensibly, it seems odd. When you tell someone directions to go somewhere, you'll see the focus is on the destination. They know where they are. So you say, to get from here to point B, A point A to point B, here's what you should do. You go north, south, east, west. And you give them the address and the details of the country, the city, the town, the street, street address. Here, the whole thing is the other way around. When it comes to the destination, it's very vague. Ela Eretz the land I will show you. When it comes to the point of departure, where Avram lived, he says, Ma'artzacha, Ma'ladzacha, Beisavicha. Essentially synonymous. Artzacha, your land, where you live. Artzacha, Ma'ladzacha, the place you were born. And Beisavicha, the home of your parents. Now, in some instances, some people are born in one place and their home of their parents is another place and the land they live is a third place. But Avram, was all three, was the place where he lived, where he was. So why does God have to emphasize the three? And when it comes to the departure, the point, I'm sorry, the point of destin- the destination, he, it is, it's a vague, the land I will show you. Explains Chassidus, that capture the three key things that block us from traveling to a greater place. As I said, traveling, you can physically travel, but if you want to move psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, you need to contend with these three elements. And what are the three elements? They all go into one category. It's called subjectivity. We're all subjective. Adam karavets alatzme, person's close to himself. There's avis atzme, self-love, prejudices, self-biases, blind spots that we all have. So you can set out on a journey and want to go to the greatest place. But if I don't deal with the subjectivity of your own internal blind spots and blocks, you could set out, but you'll always be stuck in the past. The baggage of the past will hold you down. Says Hashem to Avram Avinu. And this really is a command to each one of us, wherever we are and whenever we are, all of history. That what? that the first thing you need to do is leave the three forms of subjectivity. What are they? One is inherent bias. We all have natural subjectivity we're born with. As I said, Adam Karovets Alatzme, we're Negei You're biased when it comes to yourself. You minimize, you can sometimes exaggerate, you can sometimes underestimate, overestimate. Number two, the subjectivity that is a result of the attitudes and the prejudices of our parents and their attitudes that they, that they impose upon us on the impressionable children we are in our childhood. And the third is social pressure, social prejudices, social effects that we want to be liked, we want to be accepted, the social norm, so to speak. So you have is your natural subjectivity. is your parents' attitudes, parental attitudes. And Artsakha is the society in which you live. And all these three things are part of what shape us. But when we know where awareness of a problem is have the cure, when you know that you have these subjective things and lech lecha and you leave them, you free yourself from them, that's how you grow into an adult. There are many adults who are still living in the shadow of those three forms of subjectivity. Now we always will be affected by it, but you can... You can balance it out and counter it by your awareness and say, you know what, I maybe this may be a bias I have picked up here, maybe a personal bias, it may be something from my home and family or something from society. And when a person frees themselves from these things, then also means not just the land I will show you, the land where going on you, the traveler, I will show you who you truly are. Because if you ask someone, who are you? Maybe you're just a product of your own personal 
biases, your parents' expectations and demands and attitudes, and society's pressures on us. You want to know who you are? You have to somewhat step away from those three effects. That's even if your parents and the society and your own natural are healthy and they have very beautiful things. No one's saying we, we sever our connection, God forbid. But to free yourself, you need to be an independent individual. You need to know that you have to find your voice. You have to find your, your destiny and own it. Which, of course, is a tremendous lesson in Chassidus Applied because it's talking about looking at ourselves in that fashion especially as we leave Tishrei, with all its power, now we're being tested, lecha, lech, lecha, what are you going to do now? Not when you're riding the wave and you're being lifted on the coattails and on the wings of Tishrei and all its beautiful holidays, and Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkah, But now that you go lech, lecha, and we reach Nahar Pras, each one of us reaches our, the furthest outposts wherever we live, what will be like? Now comes the real test of what you're like. That's not just based on the influences in your life. So, in a nutshell, this is a stage as we move into the month of Cheshvan, we're moving into the routine of the year, but the goal is not to become trapped and to succumb and surrender to the mundane, but to elevate and make the ordinary extraordinary and use the powers, as the Friedrich Rebbe says, yes, Pachman Fernandez de Peklach, we unpack the Peklach. After a journey, you unpack your, your bags, your luggage. We gather a lot of great, tremendous luggage and rich resources during the holiday season. And now we unpack it, each one in our own personal way. And we unpack it in a way that empowers us individually to be able to rise above our subjectivity and achieve things that sometimes we block ourselves, the fears we have, the inhibitions, <clears throat> the biases, the prejudices, and so on, that don't let us reach the great potential that each one of us has. So there's one of the lessons that we take from Zayin Cheshvan and uh, Lech Lecha, in addition to ones that we spoke about in previous years, and here's a good opportunity to cross-reference to episodes 40, 86, 136, and 185. Previous years discussing similar themes. Uh, we have a, a very, very rich a resource called My Life Chassidus Applied. If you go to MeaningfulLife.com slash My Life, you can find all the previous episodes, all the archives, the entire library. They're all, all time-stamped by topic, so you don't have to listen to the whole thing if you go to the YouTube version of the video. You'll also find there the forum where each of you can submit, any one of you who want can submit a completely confidential, anonymous question, make a comment, suge- a suggestion, uh, re- react to something that's spoken about here, it's meant to be really a form that joins us all together, and the questions that come in will all be addressed. There is a backlog a bit, so please bear with me. But I, I'm covering, thank God, I think it's catching up, as long as there's no overload of new questions, but questions constantly come in, but I'm going in the order as they were received, sometimes bunching them together based on the themes that they address. Okay, and quite surprising to me, because at some point you think everything has been covered, but you know what, when you deal with real life, Real life is always bring new issues up, even though they may be sometimes similar to previous issues, but they always have another color, another shade, another dimension to it. So though I never expected to be doing this program 231 weeks later since we began, but the questions keep coming in, fascinating questions, personal questions, touching questions, heartbreaking questions, and I feel honored to be able to be part of this journey, this Lech Lecha journey with you. I'll also mention, since we're mentioning it, that this program is completely free and it's a community-sponsored program. So please help us with your generous donations. If you feel this program is helping you, helping others, please help us. And simply go to MeaningfulLife.com slash forward slash sponsorship. You can honor a program in memory or in honor of a loved one. Okay, with that, let us go to the first question for this week. It's about Shalom Bayit. So it touches upon Shalom Bayit, which is an issue we've talked about beginning from the early, early episodes. Episode 2, I believe, was the first time I spoke about it. Obviously, it's one of the most important issues, which is domestic tranquility at home. This is a unique touch. This question, I believe, did not come to us earlier, so I'm going to read it. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. 
We are a happy family, and we love each other. But for an unknown reason, every time we come back from somebody's house, or from an event, or after we hosted guests, my spouse and I start to fight, start a fight. We enjoy being with people, and we are surrounded by wonderful people. After fighting, we both realize that a sort of negative energy caused the fight. We always have peace when we stay just between us. We are even wondering if we, could, if we should keep going to synagogue or seeing relatives because of this. We would love to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Okay, interesting question. I will try my best to comment because in truth I would like to talk to you personally because I have some questions that would help maybe illuminate like what would be the case where two people are at peace with each other but when they go out or they have guests or some other factor comes into play, the way that you write is you always get into a fight. So there's a few questions. The first question, of course, is to ask is this. Um, is it per- perhaps because you're not really engaging with life, so when you're both sheltered and like protecting yourself in your own shell, so since nothing really comes up, there's nothing to fight about. Like, so in other words, you're living more like a almost unactualized type of life. So as soon as you go to an event or you're involved with others, and you, even though you enjoy people, you not really have the tools, how do you deal with that when both of you have maybe different experiences? So it's like somebody living quietly in a basement and never engaging Obviously, there's no confrontation, there's no, confront- there's no situations that should lead to confrontation. That would be my first question. So I don't want to draw any conclusions because by no means am I suggesting that's the case. How would I know? To be presumptuous is ridiculous. But I still point out that question, that ask yourself that question, is it possible that when you are together, you're simply on a very low, that the, the fire is very low, a low burner. And the way to test it is, why don't you have a good, serious conversation with each other about an issue, whether it's a psychological issue, emotional issue, or spiritual issue, or a Jewish issue, a political issue, but, it, but really get engaged in a discussion and see what happens when you disagree. Do you know how to disagree? So my suspicion here is perhaps, I don't know if the word, right word is suspicion, my thought is that perhaps when you go out and are stimulated by others in a situation that's outside the home, where you're not so-called the safety of your own cocoon, that's when something sparks the real differences between the two of you. My suggestion is no, is not to stay indoors, stay home, and not go anywhere. My suggestion is the following. You have to learn the tools that when you go, and let's say, whatever reason the fight, whatever the fight is about, and say to each other, okay, what's your position here? We went to visit friends. We had guests. We went to an event. We visited someone's house. And on the way back, you start to disagree. What are you disagreeing about? I would like to know, what are you disagreeing? Are you disagreeing about what your experience was like? Are you disagreeing about things unrelated to the event you went to or to the house you visited or to the guests you had? So what is it you're disagreeing about? And then disagreements can all be resolved. You don't have to necessarily always agree about everything, but there's a decent way of talking about things. So that's the next question I would ask is, how do you deal with disagreements? And what are the disagreements about? Are they petty? Are they significant? I mean, I could speculate other things that are possible, what's causing the, the type of uh, this, this um, host, I guess, uh, hostility, or you don't use the word hostility, so let me not use that word. The fighting that goes on when something else happens, it seems to me that it may also be a social issue. Maybe social interactions are, for both of you, for both of you spouses, or for one of you, a more sensitive area. There are people, for instance, that are more introverts and they like to stay alone. They like to stay quiet. And when they go out or they have guests or they're involved with others, it's, it's, they're somewhat um, disoriented, which is not something that we have to look at as a negative way. You know, the fact is you don't want to just hide yourself and not engage at all, but we have to be sensitive. So if one of the spouses happens to be that way, that may be a source of uh, discomfort. And perhaps... The other spouse doesn't really understand it, is not sensitive to it, so says, what's the big thing? So we went out, or we had a guest. So I think maybe that has to be addressed, and we have to be sensitive to each other. If a person is more of an extrovert, the other one's an introvert, or both are introverts, but a person is more comfortable being with others, and the other's not so comfortable, that's why we are, love each other. And being that you describe that you're loving, which to me is the best news of all, build on that. Use the love to address the issues which seem to be 
that sometimes cause some tension. Now, this is not uncommon that couples who are caring and loving and they're suddenly thrown and thrust into a situation that they're not, not in their comfort zone, they sometimes don't have the tools immediately. Nothing to be perturbed about. Simply use the resources you have now to address the new situation. To use a simple example, you know, you're rowing on a boat and it's in the waters and you've managed and you both have together have rowed many different, rowed a boat to many different places. But then suddenly a storm strikes or the, wa- the waves get, uh, that get uh, turbulent. Or some other, you suddenly strike something up, you're in a place you've never been to. So it's easy to panic or to get very uh, disoriented and say, what do we do? And that can create tensions and sometimes conflict. So you have to simply say, if we've been rowing till not well and we have the tools, why don't we just apply it? Now is a new situation. Let's put our heads together and figure out what we can do about it. These are some of the thoughts, and I hopefully I'm on, I'm, I'm on target. Again, this is somewhat stabbing shooting in the dark because I don't know many details, but I hope I did the best that I could with the, the little information I do have here. If you want to share more, either privately just send me a follow-up email with your email address or phone number so we can communicate, or you can write a follow-up and I'll be happy to read about it. Obviously, we also welcome anyone's comments on this matter. And as I said, you just simply put a comment in MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. Next question. Finding oneself. How do I find myself when I feel lost? Sometimes one feels very lost. One feels very, very lost in life. Like I'm in a crisis. Where the meaning is lost and one doesn't know what to do with life. How to live it, even though she has, living, she has been living in amazing times of connection and meaning and happiness and transcendence. But there are certain times that life is like a crisis and the feeling of being lost is overwhelming. I'll just use the analogy I just gave with the boat, with the rowboat. Life, by definition, is not static. We're constantly going to go through ups and downs, twists and turns, and many of them unexpected. Like riding on a road, or in this case a river, or an ocean, that is not predictable. So you could say if it's not predictable and it's unknown, that can, be, that can, pose, a lot of, that can pose danger and therefore drive fear in our hearts. But we're given all the strengths we need and the resources to deal with any given challenge. In one of the most repeated lines from the Rebbe, taken from a medrash that Moshe says to Hashem, how can we build a mishkan for you? Human beings, mere mortals, are going to build a mishkan for the Ebershter. And it's the different Medrashim expresses it in different ways. And the Ebershter answers, I don't ask anything according to my capacity, God's capacity. I ask according to your capacity, which is also completely logical. It would be cruel and vicious for somebody to give you a mission, knowing that you can't do it because you don't have the capacity to do it. So the mere fact that we have, and we came down to this world, our souls came to this world, and we live a life in which the life we live means it's a vote of confidence. And we're given all the resources and the strengths necessary to deal with any challenge that comes our way, or else we would never be given that challenge. So yes, you can say some people who have greater challenges than others is because they also have more strengths. That's not why they have the challenge necessary, but because they have it indicates that they have great strengths. And it's a vital piece of information to know in every journey, every lech lecha journey of life, if that's the case. Good swimmers are not those that just know how to swim no matter what. A good swimmer knows how to navigate. So let's say they're swimming in waters, unknown waters. What's the difference between a good swimmer and a bad swimmer? A good swimmer, the sun sees, let's say the tide goes against them, or it's a storm, or the waves are too high. What will a good swimmer do? You won't try to fight the waves. You float. You let yourself be carried. A bad swimmer who's unexperienced thinks maybe I can just fight it. And they get exhausted and they can get hurt. A good swimmer is a navigator. And we all learn how to navigate life. That doesn't mean life is always going to be a calm ocean. Sometimes it'll be stormy. But if you build your resources and you bolster and then reinforce and your arsenal in life, what does that arsenal mean? Your mindset, your emotional state, the friends and support you have, you create an entire, entire battalion or entire tool chest. That is the way to navigate. 
And if you need advice, you go to Soma for advice. Sometimes we're subjective, as I mentioned before. So there will be times where we feel lost. That's how it is. There's no one that does, is immune to that. You know, sometimes we're disoriented. We're out of place. We're out of sorts. We're not sure. Everyone has moments like that. And in moments like that, the key thing to remember is that's not the beginning and end of the story. It's one piece of the story. Maybe being lost sometimes is the opening to find something new. Because when you're very comfortable, you also don't grow. The confusion, the disorientation that comes in our lives is often the sign of a new transition. Just like a person growing into an adult or a person moving to a new place. New opportunities are always going to somewhat throw us because we're not in our comfort zones. So feeling lost, you need to remember, one, is that it's a stepping stone to growth. Number two is that you have the tools to navigate, the point I made earlier. And that's how we grow. And when you have friends and support that you can turn to, sometimes you can lean on, so you're feeling somewhat down or somewhat lost in that way, that's what you need to do. Now, sometimes it feels like a crisis, and crisis, by definition, often causes us to panic or causes us to really shrink up and... and uh, really um, um, be demoralized. So don't allow yourself that to happen. Reach out to someone. Let someone come and say something to you, just like you wrote this note to me. This program, and I'm speaking about, reach out to someone. Let somebody respond. Sometimes they can hold your hand. They can walk you through it. They can just go, go out with you somewhere, just have a drink or something, and do something that will cause you to be able to find, return, rediscover your equilibrium while also remembering that sometimes being lost is a step that you're losing, you're shedding one layer of skin to assume a new layer of skin. Okay, next question. Chabad Der Hashvi, which is of course a euphemism referring to the seventh generation, the Rebbe's generation, after, from the Alter Rebbe. The questioner writes, why in Der Hashvi do we th- do things more bechitzenius? meaning externals are more superficial. For example, more emphasis in the Rebbe, Kesha Broche, singing during davening, etc. Another way to put it, why is there more focus on chitzenius externals in our times? Okay. So first let's elaborate on the question and then we'll address it. If you were to compare our generation to previous generations, you may see that especially, um, let's take an example in garments, clothing, that there was much more looseness regarding how people dressed, obviously, generations ago, and definitely millennia ago, than it is today. Today you see there's a form of conservative standard that is expected from people how they dress. And the same thing is with other seemingly, as you put it, external things. The question is, is this just a superficial meaningless thing and just a comfort zone for people to feel like they belong so they wear a uniform or they do things just to fit in or is there something deeper to it? So let me address it in a a more of a, I guess, a Kabbalistic backdrop here. From a Kabbalistic and Chassidus, of course, based on Kabbalah, history itself is part of a process of refinement, which means the way, the way Kabbalah puts it, and cites this, is that the beginning of history, think of the time, the timeline of history like an organism, like a human being, with the head being the beginning of time and the legs being the end of time. So that's why we say, Ikvas the Mashiach, the Ekev, the heel of Mashiach, because it's the heel of the Adam Ha'elian or the Adam Kadmen, Adam Arishan. So Adam, the Reish, would be the earlier generations, which is why the earlier generations you call the de- generation of Moshe Rabbi, the de- Deya, Deya, an enlightened generation, a generation of knowledge, because they had that capacity, they had the minds that were completely superior to the generations later. And the same thing is, as you move on, you move from the Reish, you move to Midas, to the emotions, the Ava in the times of the base by Shrishana, by Sheni, times of Tanoim Amaraim, is much greater as it was in later generations. In later generations, the focus is far more on action, which makes sense. First, the refinement starts from 
refining the mind, refining the heart and emotions, and then it comes to implementation. Now, this doesn't mean there's no Mayachin and Midas today, and doesn't mean there was no Maisa back then. We're talking here on focus, what dominates. There's a fascinating Maimon in Tofrei Samach Tes, Pesach Maimorim, and as well as in Tofshin Tes, the same Maimorim with additions, a lot of additions from the Friedrich Rebbe. He talks about this, how the Birudim in the Aved, in the generations, in each Golis, began first, that's why you have Daniel's uh, vision. You see with the vision of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, what does he see? A body that's made of gold, the head, then you have the silver, and you have the bronze and the copper, and the, the lead or the clay, which refers to the different empires. So he brings in the Maimodim in Tzav, Tafre Samach Tes, and Tafshin Tes, that the later generations, our generations, the main Aved is Netzach and Heid. Netzach and Heid is already getting to Yosef, Malchus is the end. Malchus, of course, is the end of the Sphiris. With Meichen and Midas, Chabad, Chagas, the earlier generations. What's Netzach and Heid? He says Netzach is determination, sheer determination. And Heid is a Kabbalah sale. You do it because you're told to do it. She may not feel it the same way that earlier generations had the emotional wherewithal and maturity. You may not understand it the way the earlier generations understood it. That doesn't mean we don't use our minds and hearts to capacity, but the main focus is, as he also says in Basiligani, the simple soldiers, the foot soldiers. They are given the bizbiz eitzis, the the bizbiz eitzis, the. I've got the word business in English, would be <coughs> releasing in a completely like, uh, without, without any limits, all the treasures to give them the power to win the victory. So in the context of Birurim, you could argue or explain that there was a time where Aveda was more demand Aveda Primis. But as we get closer to Mashiach, and the Primis was more or less refined, now comes to finish the last sparks. And the last sparks sometimes can be more external. So the focus is not an external because it's an external and superficial. Some people may be superficial and that works for them. That's not what we're advocating here. Sometimes it's necessary to also refine even the so-called external and also the edges. So like when you build a home. So first, the most important thing in the home is to build a foundation. And then to build rooms, the most important rooms where people live and occupy those rooms necessary. But what do you do at the end? You put... You finish up, you don't just want it to have the basics. You want it to be a beautiful home. And you do the fine, intricate details. And you refine them and you clean them. Like two puts in the kneplach, as the Friedrich Rebbe is Moshal and Simcha stated, Tafresh Peites. They says, everything is ready. The garments are all set. The only thing missing is polishing the button. And then the, the buttons of the mundir, of the uniform. So the Rebbe adds, that, that too we've done. Polishing a button is not a necessity. You can have a button and the garment works well even without being polished. But the polishing is the type of external that when it's driven by the primius, like the Rebbe explains in a number of places, even though we say sheker achen vehevla yefi, that chen and yefi, it says, is false and uh, vanity and beauty are false and empty. Yet, what, what's, what, what matters most? Ishi yiris Hashem hit Yiddish Hashem, a woman of valor is a woman with Yiddish Hashem. But when you have Yiddish Hashem, the Rebbe emphasizes, then the chen and the yefi are elevated. So we're not talking about chitzenis that just, a person who's just a superficial chitzen. We're talking about also permeating the external. So not just the internal, but also the externals. And perhaps that's why there is focus on things like that in our generation that seem external because they're driven by primius, but they're also touching even the outer final last dimensions of the refinement. In addition, the fact that the people in our generation may not be on that level, so sometimes they need something that may be not as profound. The goal, obviously, is that should be informed and should come from a deeper place, a more primisdika place. But until then, let them begin with chitzenis. So I refer you now to episodes 128, 129, I think, and 130, where I spoke about this in the context of garments in a fascinating mimer from the Alta Rebbe, Lay Konaf Eid Meirecha, printed on page 144 of Maimori Admura Zakan Hakatsarim, the short Maimorim of the Alta Rebbe. And the Rebbe, Chalamay Tsukis, said the same Maimor, because that's when it was discovered, or the Maimor came out from Russia, a manuscript. And there he talks about Levushim seemingly are externals. 
And yet, those externals, he says, in Levushim, is an Indian omuk ma'id. There's something very profound about it. That's why it can actually transform someone. And the Rebbe brings there the, the story with Alta Rebbe, where some people who are not Chassidim came to Alta Rebbe, and they were mocking and dismissing Chassidim. He says, you're Chassidim. They're not holding by the level that you see them davening. They're not on that level. So the Alta Rebbe said, Halavai, may it be that it should be fulfilled in them the Mishnah, that says that if a person, and, and, and even more than the Mishnah, they didn't know what Mishnah it's referring to until someone told them. The Mishnah says when a wealthy person brings a carbon usher, brings a carbon honey, a wealthy person gives his that, that is really not on his level, but like a pauper, God forbid he'll end up becoming a pauper. So the Alter Rebbe said, how much more so in the positive, that let them fake it until they make it, so to speak. And truth is it's not faking it, because every Jew wants to do it. Sometimes you have to begin So let them do it externally because they think that it's an external thing. And ultimately they'll come to the primis. So this is not advocating chitzen, it's just explaining why there may be more emphasis on that. Now I haven't seen this beer that I gave explicitly, even though something in my memory jogs my memory that I did hear it, maybe it's from the Rebbe, maybe I saw it in a Maimed. So if somebody does have more information on this topic, please share it. But it's a very interesting discussion. And yes, it's the finishing touches. When the Rebbe speaks in the Sikh Chov Beishvat, Tov Shinun Beis, Chaye Mushke, he says that her name, Chaye, which is vitality, and Mushke, which is connected to scent, don't just create a home. They create a beautiful home. They didn't know the beauty that it's also a beautiful aroma in the home and a beautiful vitality. So these are also the idea that it's not just a dira, not just the basics, not just the core elements of Chesed, of Chabad and Chagas, but also that even the externals are beautiful. Okay, next question. Next question is, interesting question. Oh, I should also refer you in episodes 128 and 130, and also 90 and 91, where I speak about the idea why garments are so important. But it's the same idea, similar, similar ideas. Okay, next question. Is it considered spreading the wellsprings by learning and teaching Chassidus Chagas? Is learning and teaching Chassidus Chagas considered spreading the wellsprings? Thank you so much for answering questions that are not always answered. I never heard this question. Thank you for the question. Let's first give some background for those that may not know. Spreading the wellsprings is, of course, Mashiach's response to the Baal Shem Tov in Tov Kuv Zayin, when he made an aliyah to Ganeid in Rosh Hashanah, as he wrote about it later to his brother-in-law, Rav Gershon Ketover. So the Baal Shem Tov says that he went to the Hechel Mashiach and he said, Emesai, when will you, when will the master come? When will Mashiach come? And Mashiach answers, when your wellsprings will spread outward, which has become the recurrent theme, the underlying theme of all chsidis from then on, to all the generations, all the way to our generation, spreading the wellsprings outward, of course consistent with the Rambam, quoting the Pasuk in Yeshaya, the last words of the Rambam in Mishnah Teira, the world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. So it's literally like spreading it in every possible direction. So the questioner is asking, is this only Chassidus Chabad or also Chassidus Chagas? I think the answer is quite obvious. The Baal Shem Tov had many students. The Magid, which is his primary student who became the next Rebbe, had even more students. Those students spread out. And there was Chabad, the Alter Rebbe, there's Chagas, and different variations, all students of the Magid. When you say the student of Baal is means all Ma'inasecha. Yes, it's true, Chassidus Chabad may have gotten this metan and may express the essence of it and elaborates in a comprehensive way. But any legitimate Chassidus from the Tamidia Baal Shem Tov, Tamidia Magid, and their Tamidim going forward is part of Ma'inasecha of the Baal Shem Tov. So it also goes under the banner that when your wellsprings will spread outward. Now, frankly, when you learn all the chassidists together, it's an entire body of Teda. So to say only one part of it, not the other part, it's all part of one bigger picture. That's the short answer. And, um, and so the question then someone can ask, so why don't we learn chassidists chagas? So first of all, chassidists brings chassidists chagas too. You have from Neim Elimelech, from the Baldichever, and from other schools of thought. So we do quote it. No one dismisses Chabit Chabad, chassidists chagas, chassidists, God forbid. And um, in addition, there's no, there's no, no prohibition, God forbid, as part of Teda to learn 
of Chassidus, that's not just Chassidus Chabad. I mean, no Chassidus Chabad, you actually appreciate Chassidus Chagas even more. And but they both can complement each other. So that is the short answer. Next question. What is the difference between the law of attraction and betochen? Trust. Trust in Hashem that He will provide good in a way that we see it. Okay. So even though I don't feel that this is the platform to talk about the law of attraction, but since the question is asked, the law of attraction is something that recently became somewhat of a fad with um, the book that came out a few years ago. What was it called? Uh, um, It will come to me in a moment. Became very popular, popular book. The idea was law of attraction is that when you set your mind to something, and um, you will attract it to you. So it's a lot about your, your the secret. That was called the secret. It will be about your attitude. So of course the parallels were driven were drawn between that and tragud v'zangud. Think good it will be good, or in other words, trust. When you trust in Hashem, it will be drawn down. So firstly, I spoke about this. In episodes 39 and also in 111, but especially in 39. Um, the difference is when you read the material on the law of attraction, it's somewhat two things. It's a little superficial and commercial. And not to say there aren't some truths there, but it's turned almost to the fact where you imagine a, a car, a Jaguar in your driveway, you'll actually get it. So to say there's no truths in it, it I can't say there are truths to it, and they popularized it. But when we talk about betochen, I don't want to say the word lahavdil, <coughs> excuse me. But when we talk about betochen and trust in Hashem, you're also introducing God into the picture. And God runs the show. So you're not technically imagining someone say, if I imagine I'm going to have $100 million, I'm going to get $100 million. It's a nice promise, and people will pay money if you can tell them the secret to it. However, in Tata, we don't think that way. We think in terms like this, that there's nothing to be afraid of. Anything you set your mind to, you can accomplish but also be wise in what you set your mind to. That's number one. Be wise to set it to important things, to priorities, to happiness, to health, to, to marrying off good, to your children, to good spouses. And God should be kind. It should be a good, a good, pleasant life. To focus completely on type of material growth and material success and say, oh, trust in God and I'll become more wealthy than is going to be up to God. That doesn't mean that willpower doesn't have strength. It doesn't mean if you set your mind to something, you could sometimes achieve things beyond what we would expect. But I think the difference really is, is one is far more narrower in the sense it's like, this is what you do, here's a formula. But talk and trust is a far broader and more mature, I would say, approach to life. That's the key difference. Are there parallels? There are parallels. There are similarities in our confidence and in our attitude that we're winners. Always think of yourself as a winner. And your attitude can shape your destiny. There's no question about that. And I would even say the law of attraction got the idea from betochen and trust rather than the other way around. And tragud v'zangud is a very true statement. It's used initially in the story of the Tzamech Tzadik actually in a negative situation. Where somebody was ill, a child was ill. So think good, it'll be good. But you can use it also in broader situations. So the key difference I think is that the law of attraction is far more of a commercial and almost a narrower definition in order to sell books or to um, get people to buy something. With trust in Hashem is a much broader philosophical approach to life in general and all your possibilities and hopes that you're capable of doing with the overlaps that are obvious between the two. Good. Next, next is a follow-up to actually an episode back 200, 31 episodes ago. <clears throat> so let me read it. We spoke there about the Sava Kodesh Baruch that God desired to have a home, a a home in the lowest of worlds. So dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for the wonderful work and, and effort invested into helping us apply Chassidus to our lives. May the Ebrishter bless you with revealed blessings and success in every aspect of life. Thank you. <clears throat> in my life, Chassidus applied episode 200. There was a question about why Hashem created the world for His pleasure for his pleasure at our expense. Well, I answered that at length then, that it was not at our expense, and it wasn't about his pleasure. So I'm not going to go over the whole answer, because you can go back to episode 200 for that. This writer wants to add something to what I said. 
And the response that you gave of how Hashem's pleasure is not like our pleasure. We don't understand the reasons behind what Hashem does. He, he is the creator. We are his creatures. We, the, whether we understand or not, he created and gave the gift of life and he calls the shots. If God hadn't created this world, we wouldn't have life and the ability to make a place for him. We wouldn't be here and we wouldn't have the blessing of life, the joys of life and the ability to make a difference. We have an ability to create eternity, do something that will last forever, which should empower us to inspire and motivate others. I said more than that, but that's a fine summary regarding in, in our context here. And this writer continues, I would like to suggest that the question doesn't end by Nisava. The question doesn't end by the desire he desired, but continues with what continues with what God's desire is. What the deeper intent of creation and Dira Betachtenim is. Nisava kosh baruch aliyas lo Dira What does Dira Betachtenim mean? What does it mean to make a home in the lowest of worlds? We get stuck on the desire without taking it all the way. A Dira Betachtenim is a place for God to be with his Yidin, with his Jews. The purpose of creation is for our Creator to be together with us in this world in order for us to be able to make a home in this world. Hashem had to conceal himself, tzimtzum, which goes against his will. So Hashem goes against his will and conceals himself for the ultimate outcome of his desire, which is to have us to be together with his yidin in tachtenim, in the lowest of worlds. I think if we understand this concept a little deeper and take it all the way, the desire stops taking the form of Hashem wants a dirbe tachtenim and is using us to get... <coughs> Excuse me. Let me read that again. <laughs> that it takes a, a step a, a little deeper that the desire stops, the desire will stop taking the form that Hashem simply wants a didabitachtenim and is using us to get his bottom line. And it becomes the truth of God who wants to be with us in this home. Okay, very good point. So it's not just about desire, it's actually a connection with us in this slowest of worlds. When Mashiach comes, which will be the completion of Dira B'tachtenim, God, the Chosen, will marry his bride, the Yidin. And the whole world will celebrate at the wedding, in this world, which we transformed in response to his desire to be together with us. Another thought. We're, when translating words or concepts from another language into English, there's a lot that can get lost in translation or that may not be understood fully. Regarding the word Nisavet, Desire, we may not be able to understand what that means on God's level, but the concept of Chabad Chasidus is to be able to know the God as much as we can on our level. If that is the case, then where would we find a desire in our own human lives that may reflect a godly desire? Obviously, it's not an external desire for good, for good food or recreation, because that is passing and not everlasting. A desire in our lives that might help us understand even a little what a godly desire may be, what a godly desire is, may be in our innate desire or need for marriage or for children. The need to have the other half of our neshamis in our lives, of our souls, or to have a child, especially if it does not come easily to a person, is not something that is explainable. It is deeply rooted and goes beyond logic. Obviously, Hashem's desire goes deeper than that and is infinite compared to any of our own. But by finding where in our lives we can find, we may have godly desires, helps us bring these concepts down to a human level of comprehension, which in turn gives us more strength to be available to making a dira in a beautiful and more peaceful way. Thank you very much. It's well stated, and I have nothing to add, but uh, I thought it's wealth worthy reading that for the public. Now let us do a few follow-ups of last week's episode, two to be specific. One is we spoke about ignoring family on Simchas Teda, episode 230 last week. And somebody sent me that the Rebbe has a letter, Tov Tes Cheshven, Tov Shin Tez Zayin. That would be 1955, the 29th of Cheshven. So I will just read, it's a Hebrew letter, I will read you just a short translation. At this opportunity, I'd like to bring the following to your attention. In all your letters, it doesn't seem that you're dedicating time and energy to influencing your own home meaning your wife and children, in a pleasant and friendly manner. I use the term dedicating, 
Yagdish, because these efforts are crucial for the continued existence of the holy nation. The Pasuk says, you shall teach your children. And the simple meaning is exactly that, as is explained in the laws of Talmud Teirah. Especially since the Rebbe Rashab says in his famous Sikha, that just as a person is obligated to lay tefillin every day, he is obligated to dedicate time to influencing his wife and children. Obviously, it is not sufficient to fulfill your obligation with Spitz Chabad matters, matters and Eiras Bli Kalim, energies without containers. Spitz Chabad is like you know, going extreme with Chabad at other people's expense. In the end, it is at your expense as well. May Hashem give you success to set a positive example in this area for your friends and acquaintances as well. Do not limit the time that you spend on this, for the time spent on this is holy, and holiness and mitzvahs bring more holiness and mitzvahs. I'm waiting good news. I'm waiting for good news and all of the above. So that supports, of course, what I made the point I made last week. So thank you for that. Another topic we spoke about last week was prenuptial agreements. And uh, I'm not going to review what I said. It was all said last week. So somebody writes, Hi, I was a bit astounded that the questions regarding a prenuptial war about protecting money and not about what most Orthodox Jewish groups recommend them for, a way to protect the wife if the husband refuses to give a get. Get refusal destroys lives and we don't have a good halachic solution. The prenuptial can be that solution. And I specifically said, when it comes to a get, it's far more complicated and this is not the form to talk about it. You have to go to a competent rabbi and address it there. Is there a crisis or is there a challenge in that direction? Absolutely. But Teda does not give us a challenge we can't overcome. We don't have to change Teda, God forbid, to solve a problem. We have to dig deeper, find good Rabbanim to look at the situation and figure out, because the Teda cannot have allowed itself to be completely... Of course, people have free choice and they can abuse the Teda. But there has to be recourse in every given situation. And my heart goes out to anyone that's dealing with such a state... But as I said, that's not the topic. The prenuptials we spoke about were monetary and absolutely not about a get because a get is another discussion altogether. Okay. One more comment, which was not just a comment. Someone wrote, very interesting. I listen when I can to my life is applied and always gain so much. Thank you, Rabbi Simon Jacobson, for doing this. It was quite interesting this week, referring to last week's episode 230. Thank you. And, um, okay. Now let us go to the Chassidus question for the week. The Chassidus question is a, seg- a follow-up to last week's question. Last week's question was a two-fold question. I addressed the first half, or at least partially. The question is about divine unity. Ardus Hashem. Hashem Echad, we say in Shema. And based on that, you have the mitzvah liyachdei, the mitzvah to you to create unity. That this world is not separate from the God. Is not fragmented, it's all connected. And the deeper interpretation of Chassid is not only is it a unity that we're connected to God, but that actually the only reality is godliness. Ein Eid Milvade or Ein Eid. Like we say in the Psukim in Veschanon. Vedaita Yem Vashavesal Vavecha, Ki Hashemu Elakim Vashemai Mimal Vaarz Metachas, Ein Eid. And then there's the Pasuk, Atar Esla Das, Ki Hashemu Elakim, Ein Eid Milvade. So Chassidus explains not just that, the, that everything is connected to God, but everything is essentially godliness, as he explains in Tanya. And the godliness is what gives it sustenance, and even for one moment, should that godliness not sustain existence, existence would cease to be. If the eye could see the divine force within existence, it would, we would cease to be. That's why God conceals from us, but not from his perspective. So we spoke about that. We spoke about a higher unity, a lower unity. I didn't really elaborate on Yehud Elah, Yehud Tata. There's Yehud Mamayla Lamata, Mamata Lamayla. There's Shema Yisrael is usually Yehud Elah. Shparach Shem is Yehud Tata. Briefly, basically there's different ways you can unite. You can begin with existence and say existence, I look around, I see an existence and come to realize that there's a creator. You're going Mamata Lamayla, step by step. Once you come to realize there's a creator, you realize the creator created everything, but didn't just create it, sustains it. Till the point you come to realize that everything in existence is united with God. Another way to go is from the top down and say, how is it from God's perspective? How does God see existence? He sees existence as all basically an extension of his will. So it's a different type of yichud. And we can contemplate on both, and different situations require a different type of contemplation. 
Same thing you can say about Mamatlamail, Matlamail, Mat. The Rebbe Rashab elaborates a lot on that in Ayim Beis, in other Maimonim, in Teter Sholem, talking about whether, again, whether you see that nothing exists, only God, or there's existence, and existence itself is godliness. And each has its own um, element and quality that the other does not have. Then, of course, you also have the concept of Eneid and Eneid Movade. The Rebbe explains the two different levels. Eneid means nothing else. Eneid Movade, nothing else besides him. But with him, there is something else. And then there's the interpretation the other way around. So you have different interpretations in Ardus, and I'm not going to go through all the different scenarios. But basically, that it comes down to some of the differences. You also have the expression, got is alts, and alts is got. There's a very interesting letter from the Rebbe. We'll talk about it another time. God is everything, and everything is God, which is also two types of unity. But the follow-up was this, the other part of it. So how do you deal with contend with klippus, with a negative energy, with evil? It's one thing to say, okay, this table, this chair, everything that exists, but they don't defy God. They just can be, God's godliness is concealed. So you, you reveal it by uniting and saying, Hashem Echad, that this Hashem is Echad, the Aleph of Aluf Eshelelem, connects to the Shiva Rekiyim, the seven heavens and land, that's eight. And the Dal Druch is the four directions, north, south, east, west. But what about things that are defy God, that are go against God, that are evil? Or clippers that yell, Aniva Avsiyed, me and nothing else. How can you reconcile that? Like the Gemara says, Aniva who, God says about an arrogant person, cannot be under Kfifa, we can't be under one canopy. Taches Kfifa Achas. There's no room. The cup is filled, you have no room for God. So how do you deal with Ardus there? So to read the questioner's question, and then I'll explain. Okay, so fragmentation and his chalkus and ribui, the ribui of the world, the, the multitudes that we can explain all comes from Agdus. And Chesidus explains how the Agdus turns into, how, how the unity can be reconciled with the diversity. But then there's two things that still boggle my mind. He writes, I don't know how to get up, go about thinking about these ideas. Hashem is an all good God, a purposeful God. What goodness and what purpose do the Shol's Klippus and Sitrach serve in this world? And if they are part of Hashem's Agdus, shouldn't I really be happy for, for what they stand for in a sense? That they too are like divine agents, that they are here to fulfill a purpose of their creator. And he mentions also that the higher something is, the lower it falls. Like the lion and the Merkava is higher than the Sheh, the ox. However, down on the earth, the lion isn't kosher and the ox is because the lion fell further. So what, to what extent does this principle apply? Do we say the same thing for a pig? Do we say the same for, a, for a, a, a drug-abusing human that harms society? Do we say they come from a higher source since seemingly they are lower? Okay, so first, let's address this again briefly as, because it's a big topic. When we say the Shosh Klipsa Atmeis, that there are things that are off-limits, like he says in Tanya, Asur, what means Asur? Asur bidei hachitzenim. Asur v'kosher bidei hachitzenim. It means the spark of the divine in that object is bound and so-called trapped, like hostage, in the bidei hachitzenim, in something that we cannot redeem. That's why we're not supposed to go there. Leisa say, you're not allowed to do it. That, however, doesn't mean that that thing doesn't have any purpose. Like, for example, the Rebbe gives an example in one letter. A horse is treif. But we can ride on a horse. Everything in this world has a purpose. Everything he created was for his honor. And he didn't create anything that's a waste. That's why he told Dovid Amelech, who questioned the spider. So what happened? The spider is, actually, is, is not kosher. The spider is actually a lowly sheretz, a lowly creature. And what happened? The, the spider ended up saving his life because it spun a web over the cave, the mouth of the cave. So the soldiers of Shaul passed by thinking there's no one inside the cave. Everything has a purpose. There's a fascinating sikh in the A Tovshimem Zayn, Mugin, Sefer Asikhus Tovshimem Zayn, where he talks about this. So even Shaul's Klippus Atmeis reveal godliness in their own way. That doesn't mean that we consume it or we have to interact with it. There are things that are usher bana, there are things that you're not even, not even touch, even a mashu, like a vedazara, and so on. 
is already man-made. Human beings worshipping something. But let's talk about from nature, everything created, even a pig has a purpose. That doesn't mean that your purpose is to connect with it or deal with it or, be, or, or do business with it. That's number one. Number two, by avoiding it, that gufa creates agdus. Shvidosan zui takanosan. Well, let me correct myself. By avoiding it, not shvidosan. We'll get to that in a minute. What means avoiding it? Loisasa. A yeshev v'loy over aveira kilo osa mitzvah. The Gemara says a person who sits and does not and refrains from doing a sin, it's like they did a mitzvah. Why? Because you redeem it by not doing it. Since its purpose is not to interact with it or not to consume it or not to whatever the iser is, not to eat it or not to touch it or whatever it may be or not to inter- that itself is a mitzvah. So that is also creating agdus in that place. Like the Rebbe says when the Friedrich Rebbe told his captors. The story of Yud based Thomas, they said, you know where you are when they're trying to frighten him when he was not cooperating. He says, yes, I'm in a place that's part of a mezuzah. Like a deal shows, like a, a stable. He was insulting them. The Rebbe said, by that goof is also a mitzvah that's part of a mezuzah. So you bring Achdus Hashem sometimes through doing something, sometimes through avoiding it. That's also Achdus Hashem. So a tzaddik, by not doing an Aveda, is Imam Shechelikus. How is Imam Shechit? By, by avoiding it. And by, by Dechet, says, Chassidus says, like he says, Heder, since it's a Metzius of Heder, it's meant not to be used. So by not doing it, you're actually giving it life because you're fulfilling its purpose. By God forbid, doing something you're not supposed to be doing, you make it, you're giving it substance that it shouldn't have. Now what happens, God forbid, if a person falls and makes, and Eva and Aveda? So there's Tshuva. And Tshuva is, what's Tshuva? You're not allowed to go in that place. But once, let's say, a God person did eat something they shouldn't have eaten, did something forbidden, that was trapped, usher, bound in the hands of Chetzenim, through tshuva, especially tshuva ma'ava, like he explains in chapter 7 in Tanya, you redeem the spark, but what happens with the actual action? By breaking it, by avoiding it from here on, and completely rejecting it, so the spark gets freed and becomes part of your Aveda, and the shvira, the breaking of it, also reveals godliness because you reveal that God doesn't want this. So that's also a form of achdus Hashem. One final point I want to make: you talk about those, they're agents of God, they're agents of the divine. Absolutely, it says sotnu pnina, the shem shemayim neskavna. Pnina was a zain, it was a prostitute, but she did it the shem shemayim because God wanted her to. Same thing with the sotn. So the Tanya brings us the Moshla of the Zaina. What is it? That it is sent by God as an agent to test somebody. So the truth is, when you don't listen to it, that's how you have revealed the divine agents in this shliach, in this messenger. And the messenger hopes you don't listen to them. God forbid if you do listen to them, then you're defeating the purpose and you take then not Megala Agdus Hashem. So Ardus Hashem can be revealed by doing things and by refraining from doing things. And sometimes it's even deeper, Chassidus says, the love is deeper than the hain. When you don't do something, it can be deeper than what you do. But they're both revelations of Ardus. As far as the lion and the ox, yes, correct. The highest levels fall the farthest places. That doesn't mean that you're allowed to use them. That's why it's not kosher. But a lion has a power that when you use it, what you're supposed to use it for. Then you reveal its highest, highest power. So the same thing is with all the negative things. By not doing it, what you're doing is accessing its root. When you do it, God forbid, then you undermine it and you don't reveal that Ardus. That's why Taka has a deeper Ardus, because it comes from a higher place. Okay. And I would suggest also reading episodes 54 and 55. I'm not reading, listening to episodes 54, 55 and 196. We discuss this further. Let's do the essays. This week, the three essays. So here we are. Essay number one is the real life challenge. Alta Raskin, age 26, Brooklyn, New York, teacher, Beis Rivka. B is frustrated with himself. His ideal daily schedule where he wakes up 5.45 a.m. didn't happen. I'm such a failure. I can never get my act together, he taunted himself. Gives a few more scenarios of people knocking themselves. Negative self-talk. All of these scenarios are filled with negative self-talk. The protagonists were frustrated at their inability to behave in the way they deemed ideal. It corrodes our self-confidence. We view ourselves as bad people. 
The good news is that Chassidus has a method to deal with these negative thoughts. The Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, wrote a book with the basis of Chassidus philosophy known as the Tanya, and he devotes the first section to answering concerns that can separate a Jew from proper behavior. He goes on to explain how Tanya helps a person think positively. Step one is identify the thought as being negative that it comes from a non-productive place. It breaks it down to questions, when did these thoughts occur to me? How do I feel after thinking this way? Step two, interpret. Interpret the struggle positively. And three, application. Apply what you've learned in a practical way. Very nice essay. Thank you for that. This and other essays of this year's 2018 My Life Chassidus Applied Contest can be seen as they're posted at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, the essays section. You could also receive them in your inbox as they are posted. They're fascinating. They're diverse. They really reflect on a very wide spectrum of writers and ideas and concepts. So, well worth following. Next essay is, I'm going to need, I'm go, I'm going to need that yesterday. Devorah Amzel, age 18, Flushing, New York, student Manhattan, Manhattan High School for Girls. Beep, 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 beep. Jim's Apple's watch alarm goes off at 6.30 a.m. He quickly checks his WhatsApp and other social media, then rushes to get ready for show. Goes on to describe a, a morning of an individual. A warning that has become, his morning, his world has become instantaneous as technology continues to accelerate. This impatient desire to take a short, long route is extremely visible when it comes to Gashmis, the physical. We want to lose weight, attain success, have great relationships. The essay goes on to introduce the Altarebbe's long, short way model, using underlying principles of Tanya, the danger of impatience, and looking how things, especially in holiness, need to be done with patience, process, emerging, and gives us tools in doing so. Very nicely done essay, really practical. I think it's well worth reading because it really addresses literally everything we go through on a daily basis. So this can remind you of what we all can do to slow down the pace, and to focus on our priorities instead of being caught up and trapped by our gadgets. Essay number three, Think Good and It Will Be, and it will be Good, Dasi Chain, age 18, Cedarhurst, New York, student Benoist Chalmish. Short and sweet essay. People always say, if you think good, it will be good. Science shows that when the brain process, processes positive thoughts, a person will have increased lifespan, lower rates of depression, and reduced risks of death from cardiovascular disease. But what if you just can't, but what if you just can't get yourself to do so? So this essay goes on to using the Tzamech Tzedek's and a book by author Think Good and It Will Be Good by Dr. Daniel Schombach and addresses it in a very, as I said, short and but concise way and uh, helping us all get to a point where we could begin to think more positively than we are practically now doing. Okay, so with that, we conclude this week's My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 231. We're here every week on Sundays, 8 to 9 p.m., Please, again, submit your questions, MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. Support and help us by MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. Everyone have a very blessed week, a continuing week of a Yaakov al-Chudarke, Zayin Cheshven, Lech Lecha, a true Lech Lecha, finding our inner selves by being able to move away from, at least exposing the three levels of subjectivity we spoke about at the opening of this program. A blessed week, and until next Sunday, I shall see you then. Everyone be well. Thank you.